movie seven part two steven he makes that noise at least three or four times during this movie i just want the record to reflect maybe he's working on like his tennis match sound that no look i have watched a lot of tennis in my life (laughs) no tennis professional makes up He's not a tennis professional. Maybe he's trying to be and just can't get it right. Uh, no, I, I'm not sure what's going on there. Well, as our listeners know, we have been doing a rewatch of the movies and we have reached the end. Well, that's not true. We've reached the end of the Harry Potter films. I, for one, am down. We haven't talked about this, but I'm down to do the Fantastic Beast movies if you are. Well, we did talk about that. Oh, we did it as it's actually as, in an episode. <laughs> as I was concluding that sentence and saw your face, it was coming back to me that we did have this exact discussion. So we have talked about that. Yeah, Whoops. that will we should see that probably in March, April ish. Yeah, because the movie comes out April fifteenth. Correct. So I don't know how the days fall in April. Regardless, that'll be a late March, early April thing. Uh, Today, which is not late March, early April, we are discussing Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. This movie came out on July 15th, 2011. Its runtime was two hours and 10 minutes. It received an 8.1 out of 10 on IMDb and a 96% score on Rotten Tomatoes. It was once again directed by David Yates, cinematography by Eduardo Serra, music by, and I'm just going to plow through this name again, Alexandra Desplat. Um, Danny, where were you on July 15th, 2011? 2011. I would have been in Oklahoma. Yeah. No, I lived in Oklahoma at that point. That feels weird. Like, I'm like, did I really see the final Harry Potter movie in Oklahoma? So what are your, if any, maybe, um, what are your memories of seeing the final installment? I'm now questioning everything because I don't feel like I would have been in Oklahoma to see it, but I must have been. I I actually don't remember seeing it. I know I saw it in theaters, but I don't actually have any memories of seeing it in theaters. What about yours? Well, I have memories of seeing it. I I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. I attended a summer camp going into the senior year of high school, a program called North Carolina Governor School. Um, Shout out Ken Jong, fellow Governor School alum. Um, Really cool program in North Carolina. Any of that that matter. Point is, myself and uh, two friends snuck and snuck is a relative term. We were just picked up by a friend of mine in a car, but we snuck out of governor's school to go see the movie during the middle of the day. Um, Yeah. I remember watching it. I remember the epilogue occurring. And then I just remember staring at the screen saying like legitimately saying, not even just like a feeling like I said out loud, I was like, well, that's over. Um, and that was that. And that's what we thought also. We thought that was that. Well, regardless of you know future whatever, that was over, right? Mm-hmm. There, you know, 
the original Harry Potter franchise is done at that point. And I, I remember feeling a very odd sense of emptiness and finality when I, when I originally saw this movie. What were your impressions now that you have rewatched it? Yeah, I think this movie really benefits from part one in that part one set up a lot of the emotions and kind of put a lot of, you know, move chess pieces around the board in a, in a plot development, you know, strategic way to where with the notable exception, but exception nevertheless of Shell Cottage and, and Gringotts, this whole movie takes place at Hogwarts. This is like, oh, it takes place over the span of like a day, day and a half. The Shell Cottage stuff in the books, we know how much longer that is. In the movies, you could be led to believe that that was like a day, right? For all we know. Um, and because of that, they're really able just to throw in a lot of classic action tropes. You've got kind of the high, the building intensity and building tension music you've got just action scenes where you've got quick snappy dialogue followed by an immediate payoff um the color tone thing again in this movie irks me but whatever um overall i liked it i really did like it it's just it's a very different movie um i really like how they split up parts one and part two not just in terms of the content but in terms of how they developed it like stylistically. Two, yeah, stylistically, they're two very different pieces of a puzzle that work on their own, but when they come together, it's something that's really nice, in my opinion. I would agree with that. And I also like that, like, this one, it starts out at the pace of part one with, like, the flashes of Voldemort getting the wand from the grave. So it has, like, a slower pace through the Shell Cottage scene. And then once you hit Gringotts, it's like full-on action movie. Do we want to, before we get into the plot here, play my favorite game of, let's see how much movie contextual knowledge Danny knows from the year 2011? Sure, but as we can tell, I don't remember a lot of 2011. Well, you haven't remembered any of the past times we've done this, but it's still a fun exercise nevertheless. Um, Would you care to guess where in the top five... Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows Part 2 finished in terms of global box office revenue in 2011. I'm going with spot two. You would be incorrect, once again. This movie was number one overall. Would you care to have a guess as to, uh, in either, you know, no order here, uh, numbers two and three on the list? Nope. Number two was a movie that I, I have not seen. I don't think I would watch with a gun to my head. Uh, Transformers Dark of the Moon, I believe. Was How did the title. I get that? I didn't even see that one. That was like. I'm imagining like it did very three. well. I'm imagining it did very well in Asia. Probably. I think. I it's think a summer tra- release. And I think the Transformers franchise is very well received in Asia. Um, number three, any guesses? Do ye fear death, Mr. Turner? Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides came in at number three. I will give you some numbers. Gone up against Pirates twice now. Yeah, I'll tell you. um, Bruckheimer and David Heyman had themselves some battles here over the years. 
Would you care to wager a guess? I'll give you some numbers here as to what the global box office total was for Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows Part 2. Was it A, $997 million? Was it B, $1.3 billion? Was it C, $1.4 billion? Was it D, $1.45 billion? Let's go with one point. Three. Ding, 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 ding. Correct. Da, 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 da. I'm your man, Steve. What do Martin. I win? Da, 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 da. You win an entire podcast with a sleep-deprived, emotionally-drained Stephen. Congrats. It's like every week. Yeah, it's not the sexiest of prizes. I'll give you that. Um, let's dive in. Movie starts with what is quite possibly my favorite single piece of music from the entire film franchise lily's theme the the despot intro here for part two is morose and it is haunting and I, what is that like a cello or a bass that kind of that bass line that originally right da, 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 da. It is beautiful. And then when he brings in the rest of the complimenting orchestra, there's a tension in the harmonies and it sets up the movie. To me, it almost, it's a bizarre comparison point, but it's almost like, you know, like a music box when a music box plays Mm -hmm. and it has that like beautiful haunting, almost off key because it's like a little tiny music, you know, like gorgeous. I love that. Um, Once again, this movie has no color. Um, from the outset, it's it's Hogwarts, it's the Dementors, it's Snape, and it is not even black and white. It's kind of just like gray and white. It just has this nice, like, slow, like, breathing room to catch you up on what has happened. And we don't actually hear dialogue. So we go through the flashes of Voldemort getting the wand. We go to Shuttle Cottage where we see Harry at Dobby's grave. We don't have any dialogue until Luna with the wind chimes. And she just talks about like that. It's beautiful there, but we have like this nice space to like breathe into it and remember where we're at in the movie. Did you bump against Harry's opening line? Harry says to Bill, I need to talk to the goblin. Isn't it odd that like Harry just says the goblin, especially because in the very next scene, Harry says, says you may not remember, yes. which, means, which implies that Harry remembers. Yeah. And it's like Harry, Harry even says to him at Malfoy Manor, like grip hook. You might. It's odd to me that Harry is, there was a couple times throughout this film I found where either lines of dialogue or actions felt like they were placed into the wrong character's hands. Yeah. And and very specifically, it feels like a lot of things that should have been Ron actions or dialogue were Harry. Yeah, that certainly, was, that, like, certainly, like, to me, that does seem a little more on par for Ron. Right. Of course, that like, gets confounding when because Ron wouldn't be the one calling the shots here. But the dialogue itself, right? Yeah. Ron would say the goblin. Harry, it, it felt odd to me yeah. to not just say grip hook. Um, anywho, minor thing, but I, I, I wanted to see how you felt. Yeah, because it's that. not like he's a prisoner, like, yeah, it was well, because in the books, and I'm not this is not, I'm not trying to go back to movie reviews that we did in the first couple of hours, like in the book, yeah, no, but like in the books, that line makes sense because Harry has this whole inner monologue of 
Should he talk to Ollivander or Griphook first? Because yes. talking to either one uh, signals his intention to pursue the Hallows or the Horcruxes. Yes. We don't get that in the movie. I'm fine with that. I don't need that. But that's where that line comes from. Yeah, I don't think we need that debate in the movie. Right. So, anywho, the Ollivander scene I just wrote down. For Gripbook and Ollivander, I just wrote down Gripbook scene, Ollivander scene. Do you have anything uh, you want to talk about that? I did the same thing, and I just noted that Ollivander was talking about the Hollows. Yeah. Uh, Warwick I, Davis. I like how he performed that scene, though, Ollivander. Yeah, both Warwick Davis and... Jim Hurt, is that correct? John, John Hurt. Hurt. Yeah, Jay Hurt, we'll call him our good buddy, buddy J.H. Um, both did John really, Hurt, really the nice war jobs. doctor. I don't know what that is. I know you don't. Okay. Um, I thought they did great. But yeah, they were just, they were fine scenes. We move on. Um, before I talk about what I really want to talk about with Helena Bonham Carter and all of this. I just want to say one of the things I noted throughout this entire movie that starts really evidently here with this set of scenes, the sound effects and the way that I don't think they're probably using sound Foley people anymore because it's probably all digital, but whether it's the rustling of the leaves when they apparate in the Diagon Alley, the act of apparition itself, the sword going into the bag, Bellatrix's boots kind of hitting the the cobblestone pavement all throughout this movie. The sound people were just earning every, every dollar they were paid um, because they give the sound of like, just, you know, kind of the world, a lot of space in this film. Yes. Um, What'd you think of Helena Bonham Carter portraying Emma Watson, portraying Hermione Granger, portraying Bellatrix Lestrange? And honestly, it's it's a masterclass in acting. It's one of my favorite scenes to watch just because of how well she does. Even like the little things, like there's a point where she's walking into Gringotts and she trips because she's wearing heels. Yep, that one. It worked for me, though. I'm not saying it didn't. It worked for me, not just because she'd be uncomfortable in the heels, but also because in my mind, and this is just a, yet one of many tie-ins to Pirates of the Caribbean in my head, Bellatrix Lestrange is not dissimilar to Jack Sparrow in that whether they're insane and they teeter on the brink of sanity or they're sane and they teeter on the brink of insanity, both physically and emotionally, they're always a little bit kind of off kilter. Yeah. And so I could see, like when she, when she walks out of the Azkaban cell, her first appearance, you know, and Azkaban's blown up. Like she kind of does that. Yeah, teeter totter, Jack Sparrow. Yeah. Well, anyway, it worked for me. I just Helena Bonham Carter. A question for you here. Actually, this is a big philosophical question I had when watching this movie. And certainly, this is not the first time I've ever heard this question raised. I'd like to think I'm an original, innovative genius, but we all know I'm not. Two questions here. First, Hermione's voice being used with Bellatrix. We talked about this last time with the trio at the Ministry. My question for you is, are we supposed to assume that Bellatrix, Polyjuice Hermione Bellatrix, is speaking with Hermione's voice? Or are we to assume that we are hearing it that way because the movie makers didn't want people to think, is that actually Bellatrix? 
My question, I guess it's a better way of asking it. Are the goblins hearing Hermione's voice or Bellatrix's voice? I feel like the answer is actually the second part and that they're doing it so people don't get confused on who is Polyjuice's who. Okay, that's really dumb. I don't like that. It is dumb. I, you know how I feel about the change of voices. I think it's stupid. I think it thought it's stupid since Chamber of Secrets. So then my second question about this Gringotts scene, again, philosophical. When they do that, when Harry does the imperious thing, which shout out to Jason from Binge Mode, because again, not something I came up with, but it looks like uh, Bogrod is like sniffing a fart. Bogrod is the only one who sniffs it. The, the the goblin banker sitting behind Bagrod does not have the same, you know, like same, mm-hmm. but he has no problem letting Bagrod through after he's been imperious. But that doesn't make any sense because, because let's just say you and I are sitting here together and I say, hey, Danny, give me a million bucks. You say, no, I'm not going to do that. Right. Then someone imperious is you. But like no one else sees it. None of our listeners see that, right? Wouldn't one of the listeners be like, hey, wait a minute. She said no. Why is he getting a million bucks? Like the other goblin is not imperious. You know, I don't I don't understand that. My assumption would be that the other goblin is a lesser goblin. But there's no debate about it. There is and there is no debate about it. The scene is literally he sniffs the imperious fart turns around and says follow me yeah there's no like yeah, goblin being like choice. like the other goblin's not like tapping him on the shoulder being like hey man like what happened here like i, I didn't understand that um, i guess i had three questions not two my final question is ron in your opinion mm-hmm. a talented skillful wizard talented i put him on average like he's not a poor wizard well he's monetarily poor but he's not like he's he would be average he's an average student mid-range wouldn't pass the advanced exams am i correct in believing that the unforgivable curses require not just as bellatrix once put it you have to really mean it not just determination but also a fair amount of skill yes how does it make any sense at all I mean, look, it's beyond comprehension that these children who like believe in humanity are casting unforgivable curses left and right all of a sudden. But it, it begs further belief that Ron is just like super casually flicker the wrist Imperio once they get down past the thief's downfall. I don't get that. I, I don't understand that either. We did um, one of the comments I had and we already skipped this section, but like Ron has zero chill when he's just like, Harry, what do we do? Like. Which bothers me because I'm also like, y'all didn't come up with a backup plan. Well, well, of course they didn't come up with a backup plan. That doesn't surprise me. But Ron has no chill. And then two minutes later is like, hey, Imperio. Hey, Imperio. Hey, Imperio. What? Uh, I, I didn't get that. Didn't yeah, get they that were throwing some curses around a little too easily. Wait, did they practice Imperio in Moody's class? Or well, was they, that? They did all three of them in the class. I don't. Well, two. Oh no! They only they were learning how to fight it, not cast it. Right. Well, that's in the books. We can't. Oh right! I apologize. In the movies, they show all three in the class. Yeah. I don't know. I just that felt odd. Yes. 
So we're in the vault. Any comments? Well, what I'll say, not about the vault specifically, but about the whole set of scenes in and around the vault are they bring me to a couple different places in the real world, right? So first watching the trio and Gripuk go on that cart, you know, through Gringotts obviously reminds me of Universal Orlando's Escape from Gringotts ride. It's actually remarkable how similar it looked. I feel like they might have stolen some of the shots, especially for the when the trolls come up and Bill's on, it, it mm-hmm. the buzzer simple. also like oh okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was remarkable. Um, going sequentially here, the next thing that really reminded me of the studio tour at Leavesden in London, a thing that I will again remind Danny that I have been to multiple times and she has not. Um, <laughs> um, the Green God set is a newer addition to the tour. It was put in, I think late 2019 or very early 2020. I forget the exact date, but I saw it early 2020. Um, really cool stuff there. You get to see the actual Gringotts set. You get to go into some of the vault setups they had. And then you get to see the movie magic of how they did the, the dragon exploding through the main hall. Um, the last thing that reminded me of the real world in kind of the Gringotts scenes is after the dragon bursts through the ceiling of Gringotts, right? As it's about to take off after Hermione does the Rolashio, you get this beautiful shot for, for like split second, right underneath. If you're looking straight up, like, you know, 180 degrees or whatever, whatever the math, right? Looking straight up and you see the dome of Gringotts and the underside of the dragon. And it looks just like what you see at Universal at Diagon Alley. I have taken that photo a million and a half times. I've walked around that area. Like it was like spot on. Did you catch that? Cause I've never caught that on watching. This I movie. caught that. And then I was looking because we have been talking about the park and what's where, what we would like to see in it and like all the rooftops and everything and how similar to like Diagon, it really does feel. Otherwise. Yeah. That's all I got for, uh, for Gringotts. I really love the look of the scene when they drop into the water off the dragon. I wrote that too. I wrote double check mark, really good scene. All the way to the point where like Harry surfaces, like that whole little. Yes, because, because I love the way they inter, inter. Twine. Twine. No, there's a movie word. Um, it's like interstitial shot. Ah, damn it. The, the word's escaping me, but how they cut back and forth between Horcruxes and Harry struggling underwater. And then as Harry starts to come out from underwater, they slow down the frames to where it's not slow motion, but it's not regular speed. And then once he bursts through the water, the tension is lifted. The, 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 the mental like images go away. Exactly. He caught his breath almost. Yeah. And the, I thought that was beautiful. Here's another question for you. I have semi-philosophical one. Voldemort doesn't wear shoes. He doesn't like shoes. Because he's walking through Gringotts or Malfoy Manor, wherever he's slaughtering everything. Covered in blood and barefoot. Right. And so then it raises a couple questions. Are we to assume that he just goes around without shoes? Like, is he, does he not get like 
glass or rock? Isn't that painful? Like that's bizarre. But then that leads you to the question of, well, if you were to wear shoes, that would ha- that would be a talking point because what shoes would Voldemort wear? Because that then it's, it's bizarre to think about because is he wearing Chucks? Is he wearing Not like wearing Nikes? Chucks. Is he wearing dress shoes? Like so. Then my question for you is: If Voldemort were wearing shoes, what shoes would he be wearing? He's probably wearing some fancy ass shoes to show like status. But but is he? Because right now he's not wearing anything, and the status that symbolizes is homelessness. Yes, but if he's in shoes and he gets to choose his shoes, he's not going for chucks or sneakers. I'm, I'm not doubting. I'm not. I'm I'm not disagreeing with you. But I'm saying, is he? We don't know. It's a fascinating question. Yeah. Well, how because those listeners, what shoes would Baltimore wear? Listeners, creating magic podcast at gmail.com at creating magic podcast on Instagram. Um, what shoes does Voldemort wear? I think he wears almost like a ballet slipper, not like a pink one. I think I think they're they're black or like mm-hmm. super dark green. He's he's rocking some Rothies, is what you're thinking. I don't know what that is, but my sister growing up had these little slippers and they had like a little tiny, tiny little bow right in the front. I don't think he has the bow. I think he probably says and like you know, removes that, but I think he wears these little dainty but durable black ballet shoes, slippers, not like the, not those tap things that go nuts. Like, I think he wears these little. He's in Rothy's. Sure. Here's the thing. A thing I noted probably about three or four times as we went throughout, um, throughout this movie. A lot of really great guest casting coming in. Um, so the first one here. Um, Kieran Hines, who listeners may know as the King Beyond the Wall, uh, Mance Raider, who plays Abbeforth. Um, and I remember when I finally pieced that together watching Game of Thrones, because I was watching it, I was like, this guy looks very familiar. Where do I know him from? And I was watching and I'm watching. And in, and in Game of Thrones, he just kind of wears like some basic clothes, doesn't have a massive Dumbledore beard, right? Like. Looks very normal. Yes. I mean, normal for Game of Thrones. Uh, and so I was like, where the hell do I know this guy from? And I think eventually he like, I forget if he said a phrase or kind of gave like that stare, that Abbeforth stare. And I was like, oh, it's him. And so anywho, that was a big moment for me. And then my guy, Neville. Comes. Who does not look like a high school student. I'm sorry. I mean, look, none of them really look like they're high schoolers anymore. Neville looks like a full grown ass man, which isn't a problem, but it it does take me out of the movie a little bit. I'm not going to lie. Like when I see them come on screen, I'm like, Oh, you don't look like you're 17, 18. I'm sorry. I'm curious how old they actually were when they were filming. I think they had to be what? Like they're supposed to be 17. I'm going to go 21. 22. Did not look like someone who was, I'm a big fan of this room of requirement scene. With all the hammocks. Um, well, yeah, I don't. That's kind of. It's like they're on a ship, like like they're on the Black Pearl. Another time, I'm just saying. No, there's just a string of dialogue here that I think is just absolutely hilarious. So when Harry's like, "We're looking for something," and you know, what is it? I don't know. Where is it? I don't know. I know that's not much to go on, and Seamus, that's <laughs> nothing to go on. Like yeah. that, just absolutely phenomenal. Then. Again, Rupert Grant, 
uh, Ron <laughs> with, so, with some of the best lines, I think, in the entire series. Can someone tell first? Like, can someone tell me what a bloody diadem is? Right, that's class from the books, classic, you know, whatever. But then six months, she hasn't seen me. It's like I'm Frankie first year, and then Seamus goes, uh, and, she, and he goes, I'm her brother. Seamus goes, She got six of those, only one Harry. <laughs> shut up, and he, he just goes, Shut up, Seamus. And this is actually, you haven't seen Sopranos, have you? No, yeah, we've talked about this. For any of the listeners who have seen The Sopranos, it's something I was thinking about today a lot when I was watching this movie. Robert Eiler portrays Anthony Jr., plays Tony Soprano's son in the, in the TV show, and he portrays this just obnoxious child. Like, you're meant to hate him. And he does it so, so well that, like, people think he's a terrible actor. Because he portrayed this shit of a child so well. And I don't think it's to the same extent as Rupert Grint. But I think a lot of people don't give Rupert Grint the chops and the praise that he rightfully deserves from these films. Because he kind of plays like the simple friend and doesn't have a lot of necessarily dynamic acting. But he nailed. Like, I, I, I think it would only take one hand to count the number of times I've been disappointed by Rupert Grint in the entire series. Whereas I don't think I have enough fingers and toes to count the number of times I've loved his acting. Right. Cause you think about it, like, you know, rat Dan, people think is doing a ton of bizarre work, but he's doing work that people seem to really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Everybody loves Emma Watson. Rupert Grint partially, I would assume largely by choice. Cause I'm sure he's had offers, but you know, hasn't done a ton of work. And people don't look back necessarily overly fondly on his body of work in Potter. But I think Rupert Grint did a remarkable job. I just think you're you're meant to not necessarily be wowed by his acting because his acting isn't his acting is very natural. His acting is not acting, for lack of a better phrase. I haven't watched any of his stuff, but I know he's been in some things. He's doing some stuff recently. He's he's come back on the Well, he did um the ABC murders, I think it was. And I didn't ever watch any, but it's funny because that is something that seems to be up my alley with the genre. But yeah, I mean, you know, when you, when you make tens of millions of dollars as a teenager, I am sure that you are able to rest on your proverbial laurels and, and choose and not to work. And right? then you can choose what you want to work on. I, Which is what Radcliffe has very clearly done. But I would also argue in a way perhaps less harsh than Robert Eiler because Robert Eiler... You know, AJ, Anthony Jr. is one of the most reviled TV characters, like children TV characters in modern TV. I don't think it's as severe as that. But I do think there is a little bit of a perception about Rupert Grint's acting that exists. That is not, that's that's wrong. It's 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 he's, not rightfully earned. He's currently in a TV series that looks like it's on Apple Plus. Apple TV. Apple TV, Disney Plus. I know. Well, there's a Get with it. image. Um servant so he's been on that since 2019 and it right now shows current through 2021 so that is the most recent thing that he has done yeah i mean he's doing work again it just yeah. it's fast you know there's no science behind did he choose not to work by choice or did he choose not to work because this type of stuff he's getting offered was crap i, I can't tell you that but I am pro Rupert Grant is the moral of this rant is I think he does a remarkable job. I think if nothing else across the series, this little vignette of scenes here really speaks to it. Yes. 
How did you feel about the coordinated marching into the Great Hall? Well, what I don't like is that a lot of the deleted scenes that didn't make it are out there. And so I've seen those many, many times on like late night YouTube or TikTok or Twitter dives. And those are really good because you get in some of the deleted ones, Ginny and Harry together in that phalanx kind of holding hand. Like it just adds another nice little layer. Yeah. Um, so I'm fine with it. Um, I think, I don't know. I was going to say it's a little surreal that once they're in the great hall, no one notices Harry before he pops out. That said, you're probably so moved to fear that you're paralyzed looking forward. So I, and everyone was looking down. Yeah. Very noticeable. Like, and pr- honestly, he's probably surrounded by people that knows. Well, Griffin. Yeah. Different. Right. But at the same time, uh, he's not, ma- he's not six foot eight yeah. like LeBron is, but he's the LeBron James of his world. Whether he wants to attract attention or not, I yeah. have to imagine wherever he goes, he can't really hide. Not really. And that's what I'm like, if Ron's in that crowd, he's going to be super noticeable. Tall, lanky, redheaded kid. I don't think he was, though. Didn't he come in with the group in the back? Oh, yeah, he did. That just kind of stands there weirdly and doesn't take yeah. any positions of offense. Yeah, or they just t- kind of appear until Ginny jumps in. Um, so another really great casting moment, another great Game of Thrones crossover. Uh, Amicus Caro, one of the, the Caro twins, the, the male of the two, um, is portrayed by Ralph Ineson, 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 Unison, Meneson, I don't know, Ineson, um, who plays um, one of the Ironborn, Dagmar Clefjaw, in Game of Thrones. So that is your second really cool minor casting moment that I saw. Students out of bed. Students out of bed! <laughs> And he doesn't do the weird run this time. No. I didn't. Yeah, maybe he's older and his bones are more frail. Yeah. And of course, Walter Frey makes his return. Alan Rickman. Holy shit. I, I don't know. Like, I know for TV episodes, for TV, for Emmys or whatever. Right. That's what it is. TVs or Emmys. Yeah. Yes. You have to, like, actors don't submit for an entire season. They submit, like, they're allowed to pick two or three episodes to submit for consideration. I don't know how it works for movies and and Oscars, but, you know, whether it's the whole movie or you have to pick certain scenes. But holy shit, Alan Rickman, that scene should have won him all the awards. That was insane. Insane. And it also, like, a lot of, like, echo of the throwback to the turn the page 394. Yeah, it's Alan Rickman... And maybe this is just my worldview of things I've seen, but John C. McGinley are two actors who are able to manipulate syllables, intonation, and, you know, loudness of their voice, for lack of a better word, to absolutely, yeah, like the texture, it's, it's beautiful. And the way they do it is just, it's, it's, it's masterful. Right, they can turn the most mundane of sentences into this 
thrilling, tension-laden, mm-hmm. haunting phrase. And it's it's unlike, I, I, again, Alan Rickman and, like, and Johnny C., who people may know as Dr. Cox from Scrubs. Um, it's the type of person that would never need to actually raise their voice. Like, it's more terrifying for him to whisper than it would be to yell. Uh, I will say... If at this point in the movie, either within the world of the movie, Snape or meta commentary, the directors were trying to maintain Snape's secrecy about his true intention. He's very obvious with how he takes out the Carrow twins before he escapes. Mm-hmm. Like he takes McGonagall's fire thing that she casts at him. And whirls it around his head and literally flicks his wand twice at either of them. Yep. It, it's not very subtle is all I'm saying. Like if I'm a first, if, if I'm either a student in that room or I'm a first time watcher of the movie and I don't know how this plays out. I'm like, well, he, they say he's the bad guy, but he just, he just knocked those two bad people out. What? I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. Anyhow. One of my favorite lines of the movie. Oh, is it the same one I wrote down? Go for it. I'll do it in the brogue after you do it. I will let you go ahead. No, you go first. I'm not going to do any accents, so you should just... Well, you do it in normal, and I'll do my awful accent. I always wanted to use this spell. Oh, that's not the one I wrote. What? Which one did you do? Potter. It's good to see you. (laughs) Oh. And then before, I always wanted to use that spell. You're actually giving us permission to (laughs) blow it up? Boom? Boom! (laughs) But yeah, it's really great. She's in like so little of this whole movie, but that whole section is just wonderful. Particular, I can't even do it. A a particular proclivity for pyrotechnic. It's great stuff. She, She nails it. You're absolutely right. Um, here's a question. When Flitwick, Slughorn, Molly, and co are putting up the shield, mm-hmm. did you hearken back to any other pop culture, uh, instances that looked remarkably similar to that? Cause I sure as hell did. It's very similar to Avengers, but I know you haven't seen most of those. That may be playing off of what I'm thinking of. So keep going back in time. I can't think of anything else. Aven- like now that Avengers is stuck in my head. Misa save Hogwarts. <laughs> it looks just like yes. the bubble shield that the Gungans put over all their stuff when they fight in the Phantom Menace. It really does. It's like the exact same thing. It's like this membrane energy shield <laughs> that's like bluish mm-hmm. kind of energy yellowish and is pliable seemingly. Um, so I thought Darth Jar Jar was going to be there on the battlefield of Hogwarts. Alas, maybe he was. Maybe he was in that well, crowd of how, million followers. Yeah, how many fucking Death Eaters are there? No, there's so they many. All look, they all look like '80s punk rocker kids. I was thinking they all looked like baddies in your traditional British comedy or British television show. Like, like they Molly. all look like they have like a. Uh, 
a scouser or like a East London accent, right? <laughs> I'm here to do some bad stuff to that Harry Potter, right? Yeah. Like, and they all kind of have upturned collars and, and skinny jeans and yeah. So much like Maggie Smith, another character who I love every line she uses in this movie. I love when Luna is running up the stairs and is finally just like, Harry Potter, you listen to me right now. Her accent does that for me. It's yes. She does it almost like you were saying with Snape, but he doesn't have to raise his voice. Different point here, but same kind of concept in that she doesn't have to be like, kind of like Molly Weasley with the, the, the howler where there's mm-hmm. different levels. She does the same level and the same almost monotone, but at an elevated pitch. Yes. Well, and she's also the type of person, like, there are people out there that are genuinely nice and you don't expect them to raise your, their voice. But when they do, you like stop. And that's the type of like thing that's happening. Cause she's like, she's like, Harry, Harry, listen to me, listen to me. And he's just ignoring her and being like later, later. And then she yells and it like causes him to be like, wait, she knows something. And I'm then- out of, I'm out of order here. This is where I, I ordered myself cheesecake and I think the cheesecake arrived right around this time because I have notes and they continue for at least eh, about a page more, but they definitely get a little out of order. So next thing I have, you tell me if this is, makes any sense chronologically or not. Um, Helena Ravenclaw. Yes. And I, do you have the actor shout out? Because I have the actor shout out for this. Where one. do you know her from? I, I know her from somewhere very specific. Well, she is from a, a rom-com with David Tennant, but I know her because she is the voice of Merida in Brave. From okay, Disney. I did not have that either. Um, I know her as Margaret Schroeder nay Thompson, Thompson nay Schroeder, whichever. She marries Thompson. She was Schroeder, whichever way the nay goes. Um, from Boardwalk Empire, Kelly McDonald, um, who's a remarkable actress. Um, a little quibble I have with this part, though. We've heard ghosts talk before in Harry Potter, Sir Nicholas. Yes. And we've seen Sir Nick rendered on screen before, visually. Yes. I didn't understand why her voice has that like reverb quality to it when she's talking, almost like, like, almost like how I would have anticipated a spirit talking had I not already heard spirits talking in Harry Potter. Yeah. So that didn't make sense. And then the way they render her where she kind of speeds off and she almost becomes like a ball of light, which again, we've seen ghosts go through walls and through tables and all this stuff in the movies before they don't do that. And so it was odd to me. Um, I thought her performance was great, but the, the effects of the voice and the visual were odd. Yeah. Well, and even with her voice, like I noticed, that like her accent isn't as thick that I'm as thick as I'm used to hearing from her. Well, very brave. You know. Well, yeah, brave. But there's other things because she she is of Scottish descent, and it just right. like wasn't as strong as I. You heard should her. you should YouTube, um, Margaret Thompson Boardwalk Empire because her accent she she portrays an Irish woman in. Boardwalk Empire, and this sounded remarkably similar to that. Okay. Um, and I know that Boardwalk Empire was happening right around this time too. 
uh, in terms of its its filming and presence in pop culture. So I I, I can't speculate. Oh, I can speculate. I don't know for certain. It sounds very similar. So that's right. That's kind of where I assumed. And um, then you've got Voldy saying, "They never learn." And it's like it's just such a cliche line. Like he's staring at the school, and ah, oh, we get it because it's a place of education. Um, do you have the Chamber of Secrets next? My next line, the next note I wrote says, "Chamber of Secrets." Insert Stephen comments here. I. <laughs> <laughs> that's all i need to say about it (laughs) all i wrote for this is well i wrote two things i wrote ejaculation slash orgasm and then i wrote how do they get out because we know how they get into the chamber of secrets presumably they take the the sink tunnel slide thing and it you know into the dead snake skins but they escaped the chamber in Chamber of Secrets off of Fox's tail. How do Hermione and Ron leave the Chamber of Secrets this time? Because let's let's be clear, they've never been there before. Presumably, all Harry told them was, hey, Fox in. carried us out. It's not like Harry was like, hey, Fox carried us out, but I definitely saw a ladder over there, you know? They get into the chamber. I can I can believe that easily enough. How do they get out? I think mentally I just assume magic that at year two Harry would not have known. What magic do you what magic have we seen that would be able to transport them within the confines of Hogwarts, mind you, so there can't be aberration, up the massive but Baltimore was operating everywhere. I didn't understand that. I didn't either. I was like, you can't operate in Hogwarts. Maybe um, that's maybe that's because Snape relaxed the rule, or because I was like, like I was like wondering. I'm like, well, maybe the, it's yeah. broken now, and it doesn't have that enchantment. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe they like when Guardian Leviosa to rock up the slide. I don't know. A rock. I don't know the boulder. But how do they get themselves they sit on the boulder? I don't know. I have no idea. Some that, form of magic. You, you have no idea is the answer. Yes. That's what I'm saying. And um, so I want to that bring one something. I didn't like read into too much. But it, it's a question that logically, right? It's like okay, well, that doesn't anyhow. Um, I I, I want to talk about something here, and I need you and Paula. And everybody else who has an affinity for Neville Longbottom to sit down and take a deep breath. Okay. Per this movie, Neville Longbottom is a mass murderer. Yep. Neville Longbottom, who, again, similar to Ron, has not shown a ton of aptitude for skillful magic. Is running across a bridge, firing spells over his shoulder wordlessly that blow up said bridge, which is already magic that I don't believe he has the capability to produce. But the result of said magic is that those 65,000 Death Eaters who just appear all of a sudden and are chasing him across the bridge, 
die. They fall. They do done. Neville's a killer. Yep. That's going to sit with you for the rest of your life. You're not going to wake up the next day and be completely clear of conscience there. Who isn't a killer by the end of this movie? You seem remarkably calm about this. <laughs> well, I we we do not explicitly see Hermione, Ron, or for that matter, Harry kill anybody. We don't we don't explicitly see well, that a is, lot. I was like thinking about this, and this is later on in the room of requirement. Crab is out there throwing out killing curses. And Ron, Hermione, and Harry are still like, Expelliarmus! Yeah, we don't explicitly see a lot of characters in this movie killed. Like, where, even if they weren't casting a killing curse, yeah. again, like, pushing someone off a ledge, right? Like, there's a lot of times where you could have seen people fall to their death or, or whatever, yeah. where we don't explicitly see people kill or be killed. What we do see is Neville who, again, I don't think has the magic capabilities to be exploding bridges. Um, See, in my mind, I don't know why I went this way, because like now I think about it, I'm like, well, that's muggle stuff. I'm like, I thought, like, because Seamus is the pyrotechnic, that he wired the bridge, and in my head, Neville was just lighting what Seamus had done. Three movies ago, Neville was unable to do uh, Expelliarmus. But Which he is learned like, before the end of that movie, and he got a wand that worked for him. You're telling me that Neville went from not being able to do like the most basic spell to being able to trigger explosives. It's a lighter. Neville also like he's running. Up. He is he is running. Trying to do also learn to run. So I'm saying like you're like take anything that you're good at. I don't whatever it is. Try to do said thing while running. It's infinitely more difficult. So he's running. He is casting over his shoulder wordless magic, nonverbal magic. That's a whole lot of skill. That I'm not so trying much to Neville hate. No, it just it seems deeply impractical. Like again, I Using what knowledge I have from the books, the art of casting nonverbal magic is apparently very difficult and something that is reserved, if not for the most skilled wizards, at least for the ones that are like a B, B plus and up. No shots at Neville, who's a wonderful human being. I don't think he's a B, B plus and up kind of wizard. In terms of his skill and acumen. That's all. Sure. He kills a bunch of people, though. Yeah. I thought he'd be more upset that he killed a bunch of people. but You know, he like, killed a bunch of people, but I still like Neville. I'm not saying you have to dislike him. It's just like, I, it was the first time I processed that. He also saved a bunch of people. Okay, trolley problem. Are you going to... Jeez. Um, <laughs> shout out to my ex-girlfriend from high school slash early college who is quite possibly Twitter's most ardent bioethicist who exclusively talks about the trolley problem. Bioethics Barbie out there on social media, we love you. And by we, I mean someone. And by love, I mean not me. Um, anywho, 
The Jimmy Kiss. Awful. Hated oh, it. Weird. Don't want to see that again. Um, then I just wrote Room of Requirement Fire Montage. Oh, I did write that. I really liked when Ron's running and he's like, it goes fire. And he's just like sprinting because it just really made me chuckle. Yeah. That's my girlfriend, you numpties. Yeah. Um, that was good. Um, let's see here. What comes next? Let me turn on to my third page of notes now, listeners. The montage happens. That's where it's like, da, 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 da. And there's spiders and Lav Lav yeah. dies. I really, and- because like you hear the music mostly, but and everything else is like muted. And I actually really like that type of effect for how they're doing it. But it did feel very um, action movie reminiscent. Yeah, it did. Um, Snape and Voldemort at the boathouse. I was going to just ask you if Lavender is dead. Oh, she's dead. Well, in the, in, in the books, it's a little unclear, right? In the <laughs> movies, her eyes are glazed open and then... Uh, Pavardi and whoever zip her body back. She's gone. Uh, Said, and, shout yeah, out she, to our lavender cosplay, Magic Under the Stairs. Amanda, I love you. Am I going to see you at the parks on Thursday? I doubt it. By the time this airs, it'll already be gone. But you know, know that if you hear this, I was thinking about you, and that's all that matters. She did, in fact, lay in the middle of Hogwarts at one point in the parks to do the dead lavender scene. We talked about this on Sunday about how weird it was when she was like laying on the ground at the parks for a picture for the scene. I'm sure Universal staff love her. Snape and Voldy Boathouse? Yes. Perfect scene. I had a question, but then I kind of answered it myself because they don't have to kill the person. They just have to disarm them. Yeah. So, And in my head, I... I was in my head for some reason I was thinking kill and I was like, but Nagini's the one who did the fatal blows. Well, um, that's just it, is the actual quote unquote rules, you just have to take the wand from its previous owner because the wand is so powerful and because it's happened so many times in history, people the 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 mythology of it is that you have to murder to to actually acquire the power of it that is not in practice true but even so Voldemort doesn't do the murdering well he would contend that he ordered the murdering through a not through a semi-sentient being that has his soul imbued in it this is a legal philosophical question but yeah um I thought that scene was just perfect oh it's so good um Absolutely perfect. Yeah, this is where my notes trail off because I get more into the cheesecake. Yeah. So I literally write Great Hall equals Lav dead, Fred dead, Remus Tonks dead. Then I have Pensieve, Lily Snape, Harry Ron Hermione, goodbye. And that's the last notes I have for all the movie. So So before the boat scene, there's a moment and you see like the confirmation in Hermione's face that she knows Harry is a horcrux. And that was like a moment I had not like really connected previously. When he's sitting on the ground, Harry. Oh, doing his like 
post nut and they hand Hermione yeah. and you see like this light bulb go off that goes yes this this has proven what I've been believing all along Pensieve Harry is a horcrux and now we go to open at the close the snitch Harry's dead Harry's in King's Cross I'm just waiting till you have something to say about any of these moments I've got nothing to say about any of these. I mean, when I see the King's Cross scene, all I can think now about is Puffs. Shout out to Puffs the Play and all the amazing uh, creative talents over there. The great, then, great scene in Puffs. Less great in the movie Harry Potter. Very, very great in the book Harry Potter. Uh, that's my analysis on that. And then our beautiful moment with Narcissa. Oh, Helen McCrory, Peaky Blinders, Peaky fucking Blinders. Um, Yeah, that's a touching scene. It is. And this is where the point where you start seeing like Lucius is definitely like he is no longer in charge of this family. Um, And then you see the moment where Neville has the sword, but you don't see it, but you have like the sort of Gryffindor sound it's the sound because you never see the sword and like he looks at it and he knows what he has but he hasn't done anything with it yet mm-hmm. <laughs> that's my Harry Potter is dead laugh noise he's dead Hagrid carries him <laughs> Draco and mom ignore Lucius Voldemort smiling yeah this is look again this has been talked about so many times this is not an original take whatsoever no. but um Ray Fiennes was given some creative liberties to film that exchange with Tom Felton with Draco any number of ways. And this one time, this one day, he decided to hug him and did that very awkward smile and hug. And that's, of course, the one they used. And it's just remarkable. Um, It is. It was. I think it might have been Tom Felton talking about that scene is that how it was perceived when it was seen on screen in the UK versus the US. And, like, in the U.S., you know, everyone kind of chuckled at it. But in the U.K., everyone was, like, <gasps> like more shocked. Oh, Brits and your modern sensibilities. Harry's alive! Harry's, yeah. Yeah, he's alive. That's, you know, him shooting the fire at the, the corners of Hogwarts. Not my daughter. I hate that line in the movie, not going to lie. Almost because, kind of going back to what we were talking about with Alan Rickman, where he doesn't have to raise his voice or impart any form of verbal kind of vocal aggression to convey his sentiment. In the book, and I'm not saying in the book, it just, to me, the line's a lot more powerful if it's said with just a lot more cold fury than like, what Molly Weasley does, and I think Julie Walters is an incredible actress, is just it was a little too like like Wild West actory, right? It was like I've got a big line and a big scene, and I'm gonna deliver, I'm gonna really go over the top with it. And it just it felt too much to me, I guess. I was fine with the line just because historically Molly Weasley yells. But well, if she's going to yell, she should yell. Instead, yeah. it's this very actory. Not my daughter, yeah. you bitch. And like, it was just, I don't know. It was too, yeah. it, it, it didn't sit right with me. I took more issue with Bellatrix, like 
exploding into a million pieces. Her corset just causing her to disintegrate. I didn't fully it like understand the corset that. like shrunk and then she went. <laughs> yeah. That At that point, I was getting my hopes up to see a very unclothed Helena Bottom Carter when the corset started to go, but then she just disintegrated and I didn't that didn't play out for me. Um which was Baltimore and Harry jump off a roof. Yeah, and he calls him Tom and the whole thing. I just don't I remember seeing Flash hearing that from the promos like a thousand freaking times. Yeah. Let's go out the way we started it, Tom, together. It's stupid. That whole thing. I because th- I've thought about this a lot. I when Voldemort is just kicking the crap out of him on all those weird kind of gangplank bridge walkway things that don't mm-hmm. make a lot of sense uh, from an architectural standpoint. To me, it feels like they're trying, maybe I'm overthinking this. It's always felt like they're trying to convey that like at the end of the day in private, Voldemort is very much a half-blood. He's a muggle-born. Right? He's someone who came from the muggle world. Yeah. And at his core, he reverts back to muggle instincts, which is to beat the shit out of you with his hands and feet and not with magic. And that's how I always interpreted that. I don't understand the really bizarre floating oracle with his robe tentacles strangling Harry thing. Yeah, that was weird. It felt it felt like they had good budget and they had like the creative team, like the special effects team or visual effects team was like, hey. This is the last movie. We just got to the craziest shit that we've had on our whiteboard for the past 10 years. It's got to go. We got nowhere else to put this. And so they were like, yeah, let's throw it in. Let's do this weird face melding thing where they're flying through the sky and his face becomes his face. Yeah. In. Do it. One of those scenes that I did enjoy, and this is like backing up a bit, is when the guy's coming after Kingsley and Kingsley like slow motions him and then he like flies back. I really did enjoy that one. Yeah. Nagini is dead. Go Neville. Yeah, Nagini's dead. Voldemort has... Yeah, I didn't like how they re-envisioned this scene for the movie. One of the like things about Voldemort was that at his core, he was still a person. So making him like disappear into a tiny million pieces is not as impactful sounds really weird to be like not as impactful as seeing his dead body on the ground yeah i mean not even i agree not even just the staging of it like staging it outside in this made-up courtyard i don't know would have felt more powerful to me maybe if it was in the great hall because again we've been told and and we know from both what we've been told also what we've seen that like hogwarts is very much home for both of these people and the Great Hall is one of the first places they go as first years. That's like a recognition of the home and comfort. And instead, it's this presumably shattered, beaten the shit Great Hall. And the two of them are there. Everyone's, I don't even need everyone around them like it is in the books, even if it was just the yeah. two of them. I don't know. That would have felt more powerful. The, the uh, filmmakers could have done some fun stuff with the light through the broken stained glass. I don't know. I'm not, look, I'm not a movie producer. Guys, I'm just throwing out ideas. Uh, Felch sweeping up the rubble. Yeah, that just felt mean. <laughs> it's like, we know the guy's a useless squib, but. Maybe just what he knows and that's what he chose to do. He's just like, mm-hmm, I guess this is my job. Yeah, sure, <laughs> I, no, I, I guess I don't know. 
but it's even just like the battle had just ended. Like, it's not like yeah. that was a couple days later. Yeah, no, it was just like, it just ended. You can go take a breather. Like, go find the Slytherins in the dungeon. Right, like, like uh, there's so many super morbid metaphors. But, like, the second after, uh, like, the actual second after a natural disaster, people aren't, like, for vanity's sake. Yeah, for vanity's sake, removing dust and debris. And he also, yeah. like, found the broom. Yeah, like, like Phil, you got to triage stuff here, my guy. Like, yeah, that's important. But compared to, like, 55 other things that I'm sure you could be doing, it's not up there. Yeah. Okay, so when this started, you asked me my memories of first seeing this movie. This is one of the strongest memories of seeing this movie. The one thing I hated the most that they changed from book to movie was that Harry doesn't fix his own wand. That doesn't make any sense. It bothers me so much. Not necessarily like that he snaps the elder wand, but that he doesn't fix his own wand. Cause I felt like that would have been like a powerful moment. And I remember because this is how like literally essentially ends being so mad at the end of the movie. Cause I'm like, now he has no wand. Yeah. I have no problem with him snapping the elder wand, but he needs to do that after he's repaired his. Yeah. Right. Like I, he doesn't need, they don't need to revisit gambin and the grave and all that stuff to put the wand back but you have to fix yours otherwise how the hell do you get through the rest of your life yeah yeah i'm with you on that and then 19 years later you know people like maybe because of cursed child i don't know people love to make a big deal out of this scene for for better or for worse you know Mm -hmm. it's fine i don't know i don't i don't have any qualms with it i think it's like a nice little tail end to be like and they lived. Yeah, I don't think Ginny would be looking like that. No. If you ask me, I'm sorry, Potter kid. I think I cursed earlier, though. So at this point, we're already in. Ginny's a MILF. At least she should be. And Ginny is a very pretty woman in this in this epilogue. But she's a lot more like... Matronly. Matronly and like handsome. Which is like not like Ginny went on to be a professional Quidditch player. Ginny, again, oh, I'm not she, doing she's this. She's not rocking the Karen cut. Like it's nine fifty nine at night. I'm not going through all the reasons why this film completely ruined the portrayal of Ginny Weasley for me. Ugh, it just it wasn't great. Um, who, in your humble opinion, won this movie? The trio and Patrick, but the trio for the most part. I think you kind of have to lump them together. Harry definitely at the top of that list. I think it was just a powerful showing from them. It was still very focused on them. We did have more characters than we did last movie, but it's the ending. The trio has to win. You? Alan Rickman. Alan, he's been pitch perfect in every scene he's had across this entire series. Very true. But he has more... Every action Alan Rickman has made on screen over the first seven movies could all be portrayed in retrospect as which side is he actually on. But watching this movie, if you're watching it for the first time in real time, you are so close to the to the 
the volcano finally bubbling over to the whatever metaphor, right? To the pot finally bubbling over, right? You're so close to the truth finally being revealed that there's so much extra scrutiny on every single word that he's delivering. And he just nails it. He absolutely nails it. Remarkable. I think runner up number two goes to Helena Bottom Carter. I think runner up number three. Rupert Grant continues to amaze me. He's under underrated, underrated. Um, favorite scene? Favorite scene is the Hermione as Bellatrix as all that. Like that's just such a good scene. I don't know. Like favorite's necessarily the word, but I really enjoyed that one. And then let's see. I thought I put my, wrote another one down. And really all the Maggie Smith stuff. Those are ones I just enjoyed this movie. Yours? Yeah, I, I could go with either of the major Rickman ones. So either Snape in the Great Hall or Snape in the Boathouse, because both of those were incredible. But I actually think one of the ones we talked about earlier, the, the Voldemort-Harry perspective flip as Harry falls off of the dragon into the water, and you see all the Horcrux, Horcruxes flashing to Voldemort's eyes, all the murder. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was really, really, really well done from a from a production standpoint. And yeah. it was it, it was chilling and it was insane and, and intense. And uh, yeah, it was it was a really cool sensory experience. I really liked that. Most surprising thing for you having consumed this film. I really enjoyed this one a lot. Like I might rank this as my top of the series. And this is probably one of the ones I've watched the least just because I tend to try to start from the beginning and don't ever get to the end. I don't know that I found anything overly surprising. This is a movie that I've always liked with the notable exception that I just don't love how they handle a lot of that Harry Voldemort fight. Uh, throughout the castle but yeah okay whatever i guess biggest surprise maybe things that i noticed I'll, I'll go with that for this one i noticed for the first time you know around the gringotts scenes a lot of like the inspiration there for what has formed things throughout the real world right at universal but that was really really cool just as an observation I had never really put together before that Neville murdered a bunch of people. <laughs> um, so that was, I guess, surprising in and of itself. Uh, so I'll go with those as my two big ones as being able to see inspirations throughout the studio tour and theme park world of Harry Potter um, derived from the movie sets and movie scenes and then Neville being a mass murderer. That should be the title of this episode. If you were to rank the movies from your favorite to least, what is your ranking? But see, this is exactly what I'm talking about. This is a perfect transition because if we had really efficiently and effectively planned, we would have had just a little small note that I could have referenced that just had like a quick three-word summation of how I felt about each of the previous films as we recorded these episodes. But I don't remember what the hell I said for any of those. So I'm just going to do this live as we go here. Let me get a clean piece of paper. Which was the one I was really surprised that I liked? Was it two? It was one of the 
One of the earlier ones, I was surprised. It wasn't one. We both like two. All right. So, look, Goblet is the absolute bottom. Let me write it down here. I know that. Goblet's the worst, by the way. Then I believe... Can you place your number one pick? Well, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me. Let me. You're gonna try to do it in order. Yeah, because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of sort of stuck between a couple at the top, and I'm hoping if I work my way backwards, I'll get to it. Um, Goblet's my least favorite. Uh, that's easy. Did I like Stone at all? We really struggled because that's the one that we were like, "How is this movie still going?" All right, so Stone is second to worst. Then. It's the introduction of Gambin. I know Alfonso Cuaron did a great job, but I'm sorry. As Caban, third bottom. I'm going to go Chamber after that. Then I'll go Half Blood. So I've got three left. I've got both of the Hallows and I've got Order. Gut Instinct, if I'm not thinking about it, tells me to go Hallows 2, tells me to go order and then my number one is definitely hallows one maybe tomorrow morning if i were to do this i'd flip order and hallows one but so if i'm doing that from favorite to least favorite deathly hallows one order two deathly hallows two in third half blood fourth chamber fifth azkaban sixth stone seventh goblet is just so far below even the most mediocre of student films um, what about you? Ours are pretty close. Um, I completely forgot about Azkaban when I was doing this because I was just thinking seven, not eight. Um, part two is going to be my top. And then part one, I think Half-Blood, then Order, then Chamber, Goblet, and then Stone. Well, you're missing Azkaban. Azkaban. Oh, right. I would put Azkaban in... Fourth place. So above order? Above order after half blood. Azkaban. I think. Order. This might change tomorrow. Chamber. You said stone was released? Yeah. You dislike stone more than goblet? I think I think the experience of watching stone was worse than rewatching goblet just because it just felt so long and i think that i'm associating that more than the actual movie so we agree on zero of these you're looking at your list doesn't include azkaban which is why you think that we agree on a couple of them without azkaban we were pretty close yeah but that's without a whole movie so yeah um interesting we've made it through all eight movies we've made it through all eight movies but I will say that today on the day of recording is Sarah Jones Dittmeyer's birthday. Sarah, happy birthday. Many happy returns to you. Hopefully you get a big pink cake that hopefully a large OV half giant didn't sit on halfway through his journey. Um, yeah. So uh, that's all I got. That's all I have. Goodbye. Wow.